Hi, this is Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 42 of the Clarinet Podcast, the show where I discuss all that's new and neat with clarinet, with the neatest people in the industry. Today, I speak with Tom Kamichuk, who is the Artist Relations Specialist with Dario Woodwinds. We discuss the importance of artist relations within a large corporation, what Tom's job entails on a day-to-day basis, and uh, much, much more about Tom's experience, for example, studying Las Vegas and, and all sorts of really great stories. The giveaway for episode 42 and 43 is a Diderio X25E mouthpiece valued at approximately 99 US dollars. I've had the chance to try this mouthpiece out myself for quite a while now, and I have to say I absolutely love it. It lets me play with a really soft reed with a fantastic uh, response and tone color that I'm, I'm really, really enjoying. It's, it's become one of my favorite mouthpieces. If you'd like the chance to win this and other items mentioned on the podcast, be sure to go to clarinet.com and enter your email address in our email subscription box. This will also give you access to free content updates, special offers, coupons, and more. If you have any listener feedback or requests for upcoming guests, please do not hesitate to contact me directly. You can do this at feedback at clarinet.com. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Diderio Woodwinds. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, Diderio is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques. So you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from Diderio Woodwinds, visit diderio.com woodwinds. So I'm here today with Tom Kamichuk, who is the Artist Relations Specialist with Diderio Woodwinds. I'll be honest, Tom, I'm not actually sure what that role entails, and I'd love it if you'd walk me through a typical day at the office. Sure. Well, actually, one of the things that I love most about my job here at Diderio is that there really is no typical day. So I find that every day is a little bit different, just depending on what we're working on, um, who's in town, and kind of where I am, too. I end up traveling a lot for this job. Um, There are two main places here in New York where I work. Uh, We have a main office, which is located in Farmingdale, New York, which is in the center of Long Island. And then we also have a showroom, which is in Midtown Manhattan. So that's more the New York that people envision when they think of New York. Um, We're kind of between Times Square and Penn Station, so it's very centrally located. Um, In the showroom, I'm typically meeting with artists or just different musicians in the city who want to come in to try out reeds and mouthpieces. Um, sometimes we meet other people there just for, um, for events. We'll have showroom masterclasses or performances with artists. And these tend to just bring in different people from around the city. Um, yeah, you know, I've actually seen some of those little performances pop up online. You had Ed Joffe there doing some sort of, uh, seminar recently. And every time they pop up, I'm jealous of, of the fact of how vibrant New York is and how much is going on there all the time, especially at your little, the Diderio, um, uh, showroom there. Well, you should come to New York sometime. I'd love to. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it looks like you guys have something going on there almost every week now. Is it pretty busy? It has been. Um, and that's actually one of the things that's been a big part of my role since starting here, um, was essentially building the showroom, not physically building the showroom, but, um, turning it into a space that would be uh, a usable space for our artists and for musicians in the city. So prior to me starting at the Dario, the space was more or less used for appointments here and there when needed, but there wasn't really anything set up. Um, there were occasional events happening in the space, but a lot of it just came from lack of bandwidth 
the, the brand has grown so fast and our product specialists and product manager were so busy with other tasks that the showroom kind of fell on the side. And so one of my big roles with the area when I started was kind of getting this place set up and turning it into a usable space for us. So now we always have products displayed. Um, I try to do master classes at least once a month during the school months. So um, that way we can bring in students along with professionals in the community, just make sure we have a good audience there. Um, but it's been really great just seeing the space transform since I've started here and basically turning from a storage type place into just a great space for people to come and hang out. So is it completely open to the public then? You can just walk right in off the street or do you need to make an appointment? Um, typically making an appointment is best, but if I'm there and people come in, well, obviously I'll let them play things. I have no problem with that. Do you guys get a lot of interesting foot traffic? I mean, right downtown Manhattan must be a pretty, pretty busy place. Well, we do. We get a lot of musicians who come in. Um, we actually do get a lot of guitarists who come in too um, because they, they recognize the name Diderio. They see the sign um, or they're traveling musicians and looked up Diderio on their phones and we came up. And so they just try to stop in. So we do keep a few guitar things in there because I learned quickly that guitarists stop in all the time. And uh, we also use the space for orchestral too. So string players will come in sometimes to try things out, um, take things with them more often because they can't restring a violin right in front of me. But um, yeah, it's, it's a pretty good amount of traffic that comes in. Um, we do have a nice working relationship with um, Buffet, who's actually downstairs from us, which is, is fantastic. They're located on the fourth floor of the building or on the fifth floor. Um, so it's been great because we bring in sometimes different audiences of clarinet and saxophone players, and we can help showcase each other's offerings and show, um, sorry, we can help showcase each other's showrooms to mm. our audiences. So who's the, who's the coolest person to walk through that door? I mean, you guys are, uh, D'Addario has a lot of really interesting artists under their umbrella, like Mark Nuccio, Henry Bach, Laurie Bloom, and even Kenny G. Is there anyone who stopped by of interest? Um, I guess probably the first big name that I had come into the showroom once I had things set up was Richie Holly. Hmm. Um, and he's somebody that I, I hadn't met before, before starting at D'Addario. Um, so sorry, I'm kind of laughing cause I actually did meet Richie before I started at D'Addario, but I think he forgot. So, <laughs> um, I actually, this doesn't need to be in there, but I can tell you, <laughs> I auditioned at Cincinnati for my doctorate and it was the worst audition I've ever had in my whole life. And I, <laughs> I think he forgot about it, which is good. That is good. Um, yeah. <laughs> it was, it was, horrific. And I think he forgot about it because when he met me starting at this role, he said, Oh, it's very nice to meet you. And he's like, you look really familiar, but I can't remember where I was like, Oh no, I don't think we've met before. Yeah, And you're like, um, don't, don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and it's fine. It's fine. You probably would laugh about it now, but at that point I didn't want him to know. Oh yeah. I was that terrible student who couldn't play Mendelssohn's character <laughs> for you. Um, but he was one of the first people who, um, I set up a showroom event for when I started with the Dario and, um, it was just really great to get to work with him in that space. Do you also deal with ensembles or just individual artists? Um, I do deal with ensembles. Um, not so much on the clarinet side of things, though, because there aren't a ton of clarinet ensembles. But um, we do have a number of fully endorsed saxophone quartets. Um, we have the Oasis Quartet, Mana Quartet, Zizek's Quartet, um, which are pretty big names in the saxophone world. Um, and then we do have a few bands that have... Um, horn sections in them that are technically, I guess, endorsed more so for fretted instruments. But 
as a result of them having a woodwind player, I interact with them. So uh, like Snarky Puppy, um, mm-hmm. Moon Hooch. Oh, wow. Those, those guys are... Might not know. But. Have you met the Moon Hooch people? Um, I haven't, actually. We've emailed quite a bit, and they live in New York, so it would make sense that I would meet them soon. Yeah, in the but. subway, they play all the time. For those who don't know, this is like a... I think it's a saxophone duo with a drummer or something. Mm-hmm. Tri- trio, yep. maybe. And they make some of the coolest stuff. i got to post some of the show notes. It's it's amazing. But they are saxophone players, so I don't know if it's really appropriate for us to discuss much longer. But <laughs> It's okay. Yeah, they, clarinetists can hit mute if they need to. We'll, we'll make one but. exception for today, just just a brief one. <laughs> but yeah, sorry I interrupted you there. I got so excited about Moon Hooch, but who else? Um, well, and then other ones are just people who are individually endorsed but are part of, of larger groups. Um, thinking saxophone again, that's where most of them are. Uh, like Jeff Coffin, he's the saxophone player for Dave Matthews Band. Oh, wow. Um, he's one of our artists. Um, so we have a number of people like that where it's um, n- not necessarily that clarinet or saxophone is the the main part of the group, mm-hmm. um, but they're part of a very large name, well-known in the general public type band. So we do endorse those types of groups too. Um, but primarily the ones that I work with are classical clarinet and saxophone and then jazz saxophone. So why do you think that artist relations is so important to such a large company like D'Addario and and how does this sort of help help artists interact with the business and vice versa? I think it's very important that a company has somebody who's handling artist relations because it's vital that there's always one person who is the point person between the artists and the company. Um, and I think it can get really confusing for an artist if they have multiple point people because they don't know exactly who to go to with each request. Um, I like to think of it as though you went out to eat at a restaurant and... You had to tell the cook what you wanted to eat. And if you needed silverware, you had to go find the the person who washes dishes and tell them that you need silverware or a plate. Um, I guess I I kind of think of it like we have a waiter or a waitress where you would communicate your needs to them and then they would make sure that the appropriate people get the information. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that's primarily what an artist's relations representative is there for, is to be the, the communication. So if an artist has feedback or um, an idea, or just need somebody that they want to talk to about things. They have a representative at the company that they can go to. And then if there's information that I need to communicate to um, people in marketing or product development or um, other areas at D'Addario, I'm able to do that. So you're also an accomplished artist, though. Do you feel that helps as well with this, with your job and with uh, your role with D'Addario? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the most important things about being an artist relations representative is that I'm a musician too. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a huge asset to a company to have the thought of putting a musician in this type of role rather than a business person. Even though I have to do some business type things like budgets and spreadsheets and those types of things and mm-hmm. lots of acronyms that always come with the business world. I have to learn all of those. <laughs> so there's a learning curve on that end. But as a result, when the artists come to me and talk about specific performance issues or performance suggestions about products, um, I understand what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. So they can say, I just went and played Bolero on your new E-flat clarinet read, and I found this and this and this one crossing the break, and in the lower clarion it did this, and in the throat tones it did this, and I understand exactly what they're talking about. And if I were a business person, I would have no clue what they were talking about at all. Um, So I feel like being a musician and one that understands different aspects of clarinet and saxophone playing has made this, um, sorry, has made me valuable for this position. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and you actually are a doubler, well, tripler, even quadrupler. You play <laughs> clarinet, saxophone, um, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but also oboe, bassoon, and flute, right? I do. Mm-hmm. So Daddario obviously isn't making too many flute reads, but you guys do offer some some products to to flute players. But do you feel that being a doubler helps you be, again, more of an asset as far as how you can communicate with such a vast uh, variety of artists? I do. And a number of our artists, particularly saxophonists that are independent artists that are, are jazz players, a lot of them also double. Um, it's not necessarily standard, but it's very common that they'll also play flute and that they'll play clarinet. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of allows us to create this bond when I'm talking with jazz saxophonists where I may not necessarily always have a ton to talk to them about. They'll talk to me about different progressions and triadic approach and things like that. And I mostly know what they're talking about, but um, (laughs) when it comes to things like they're talking about flute or clarinet, then I know what they're talking about or saxophone specifics. Um, Things like talking about certain notes that, you know, certain registers or different things about playing the saxophone or pedagogy. I can understand that just fine. But um, as I was saying, I've, I'm one of those people that likes to learn too. And so for me, not really having any experience in jazz other than making up a bunch of bad jazz solos playing Hakuna Matata (laughs) for Lion King. Um, That was really my jazz experience. Mm -hmm. Um, The saxophone that I studied was classical. So for me, it's been great getting to learn more about the jazz community also and getting to see how different it is and how networking is different, how endorsements are different. Um, And just priorities in general are a little bit different for the jazz saxophone community than it is for the classical clarinet community. And so for me, it's been great to just learn about the types of things that make them tick and what they're looking for. Totally. And you actually earned your DMA in music performance at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. That must have been really interesting to study in the city that never sleeps. What was it like? Would you share a story? Sure. Well, I can't share stories because what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. So (laughs) um, no, there's nothing bad happened there. But Nothing um, ever, ever. No, absolutely not. But um, no, Las Vegas in general is a great place to live. And I think many people have this idea that the casinos and the hotels are all of Las Vegas because I get asked that question a lot when people find out that I went there. What was it like? Did you live in the Bellagio? But I didn't. (laughs) Um, I wish I would have. But instead, I lived in a house, which was nice, too. Um, Yeah, I just had a three bedroom house with my best friend over on the edge of town. Um, We could go mountain biking. there was a lot of musical opportunities there. So I got to play for a few shows on the strip. Um, I played for Lion King and for Phantom of the Opera for a few years. Um, I was also um, playing with the Las Vegas Philharmonic, the Nevada Pops Orchestra, um, Henderson Symphony. I got to do a lot of chamber performing. So musically, it's actually a very, a very good community. And I felt like I was very, um, very involved. And I felt like the musicians there were very passionate about what they do. Um, and it was also a great opportunity to get to meet a lot of musicians because so many people travel and tour through Las Vegas. Um, it kind of is a musical hub, even though it's four hours away from the next closest city. It's interesting because that sounds, you know, in America, that's actually very odd. But to me, that's it's like, oh, it's not too bad. Up in yeah, Canada just, here, most cities are at least, I mean, we in, in Alberta, we have two cities about four hours apart. And that's, uh, you know, actually pretty close. The, the next biggest one's like Vancouver, which is a 12 hour drive. But so it's not quite as uh, alienated as up here, but it is out in the desert. It must be hot. How do you deal with reeds? And um, it's also dry, correct? Yes, it is. Um, and actually, this is a good time to talk about when I started using Diderio products because it was in Las Vegas. Um, 
primarily because of the weather concerns. Um, before that, I was living in Texas, and Texas humidity is quite a bit higher than in Las Vegas. And I was able to just do whatever with my reads, and they tended to work for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I moved to Las Vegas, and nothing worked. Um, and I started getting to the point where I actually had to do all the things that my teachers had told me all along I was supposed to be doing, but didn't do. So I had to break in my reeds. I had to store them in a humidity-controlled climate. Um, and that's when I first started using our um, humidity-controlled reed case was there because my reeds just wouldn't work otherwise. It, nothing would play. Everything sounded bad. So that was the point when I started using that case. Um, and actually, it just so happened that our product manager at that time came through UNLV right when I had started there, dropped off a whole bunch of samples of reeds and products. And that was my first opportunity to try the reserve reeds. And I was like, wow, these were considerably better than what I was using before. So Mm -hmm. that was the point when I started using them. And I realized, especially in that climate, having a reed that was uh, very responsive and very flexible was extremely useful. And that's something that is still carried over. I still use them today. And how exactly does the Humidipack work then for people who haven't checked that out? It's like a little case with a a product that you add in that's replaceable. Um, It's basically a two-way humidity control pack. So when you put it inside of an airtight environment like like our reed case, it can either add humidity or absorb humidity depending on the climate that's within the case. So in a place like Las Vegas, it was typically dry. So I'm assuming that it was adding humidity most of the time to keep my reeds from being completely dry and um, and from warping so they wouldn't dry out completely. Um, and then in places like Louisiana, where I lived after that, I assume that it did the exact opposite. It was probably absorbing humidity to keep my reeds from molding. And so do you um, find you had to replace it more often in, in Las Vegas than, for example, now in, in New York? Yes. I had to replace it probably every I don't know, four to six months in Las Vegas to keep my reeds playing at their optimal condition. And then here in New York, they seem to last a lot longer. Yeah, it seems to be a similar sort of idea to the, um, there's a case now that actually does this for the clarinet, the whole instrument. And um, I think it's called a Lomax or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and, actually the same pack. It's just a bigger version of the pack. Oh, interesting. It's mm-hmm. exactly the same. Because yeah, I, I actually went to a seminar at Clarinet Fest the year talk, this year talking about this. And it seemed really interesting. And it, it made a lot of sense to me that in order to maintain this optimal humidity, it kind of has to go both ways. Um, some people, they worry so much about getting their instrument and their reeds humidified, they actually go too far. And that can cause for instruments, you know, cracking and for reeds, definitely mold and, th- and things like that. So exactly, these two-way packs are, are really the way to go. They can both subtract and add humidity. Um, but yeah, I don't know exactly how they work either. Maybe that's one next time for the the product uh, the product gurus over there. <laughs> It's a mystery substance. They're, um, <laughs> For our purposes, it's magic. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I had one actually um, at a show that I don't know what I was doing. I was They're kind of squishy, so they're kind of fun to just squeeze and play with while you're talking to people yeah. at shows, which is not good. And I actually had one explode on my hand, and I oh, have wow. no idea what it was. And I was worried I was going to turn into a mutant ninja turtle or something, but I didn't. <laughs> but, I think um, I'm pretty sure it's non-toxic or something. I'll have to check the think, thing afterwards. I don't, But I don't I think don't we think should it eat is. it. Oh, no? No. No. No, I don't think it's toxic or anything, but I have no idea what it was. And it, you know. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's not toxic. We'll we'll check it out. And yeah, I'm excited. Actually, I've got one of those packs to uh, review here and I can't wait to give it a go. Um, I've had a lot of problems in Calgary here with reeds over the years, as everybody does. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's just so extremely dry um, as it is down 
down in Las Vegas, I think. Yes. Um, so you have done, I want to get back to the travel because not only have you traveled a lot for teaching, but like you currently also travel quite a bit for work and as a performer, you've traveled, of course. Um, do you have any travel tips for musicians or travel tips in general? I always like to touch on that a little bit. Sure. Well, for musicians, I think the best thing that I learned was to make sure that you're utilizing the time in airports and on the plane the best that you can. Um, and I remember when I used to travel before, I would think of it as sleep time or Nintendo DS time. You know, it was just <laughs> relaxing time. But uh, I found that I can actually get a lot accomplished musically on the plane. So uh, one thing I've been doing recently is um, I'll get scores in digital format for my MSLP or um, if, or sometimes I have physical scores if it's something that's not public domain. Um, and I'll bring them on the plane. I'll go on Spotify and put some tracks on offline mode so you can access them when you don't have a connection. Um, and I can use it to score study. And for me, it's been a great way to learn just different pieces of literature that I hadn't yet experienced um, and still keep my mind musically engaged while on the plane. That's such an interesting idea, actually. Are you Have you switched to digital music completely then as far as the iPad goes or...? Um, no, I'm too old school. I haven't for books even. I'm just, I'm one of those people. Yeah, some I, people can totally just latch on to the new like iPad for music or whatever. And some people, myself included, which is odd because I I also consider myself like relatively tech savvy, but I still reach for my paper books and my paper sheet music all the time. And and I just I, can't cross that, that bridge either. But Yeah, I'm the exact same way. Even um, I just bought a new actual bassoon etude book the other day. And they had it in digital format and it was considerably cheaper, but I'm looking right now and I can see the paper copy sitting there. It, there's something about holding a physical copy and being able to write on it. Um, and then being able to reference your notes easily that for me is, is comforting. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. I've, I've struggled with it. There's people who swear by it now. Um, and I, I guess I'd like to try it again, but I'm the same way. I like to have the actual paper or see two things at once or I don't know, maybe just old exactly. school. The kids, all the kids listening to this nowadays are probably like, oh my God, who are <laughs> these old, old folks up here? <laughs> this is when they start fast forwarding. Yeah, exactly. About the good old Skipping days. ahead. Yeah, the good old days. Back in 1999. Yeah. <laughs> so those are, that's a really interesting travel tip. What, what do you like for, for headphones on the plane? Um, I actually have these noise canceling headphones that are fantastic um, by Bose. Um, I don't know anything about them. And I actually got them as a gift from my father a few years ago for Christmas. So I don't, I don't know the model number or anything about them, but I know that they're fantastic. Um, and they're actually things that are great for traveling when I'm staying in hotels or at different places, uh, just because I can get rid of the sound. So sometimes you stay in hotels that are not as quiet as others. Um, it just depends. And so for me, that's always been helpful to be able to do that, to have the, the noise canceling function, even outside of planes. Yeah, I was thinking just now when you said you were score studying, I was my, my main you know thought was, man, the plane's pretty loud. I mean, I wonder how you're hearing that. But so the Bose noise canceling that ones, eh? Oh, they're fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I love them. Are they the ones that need batteries? They um, this one doesn't. No, it charges via USB. Oh, interesting. Um, and I always have a a battery pack with me, so if it starts dying on the plane, I can charge it, and I can also charge my tablet. And I I tend to be overprepared for all trips and everything in my entire life, it seems. so. That seems um, to be a running theme with people who travel a lot, though. <laughs> they they know everything is at all the time. Do, do you check luggage when you travel? Um, Sometimes. It depends yeah. on the duration of the trip. Yeah, um, If was... it's just a two-day, then no, I can just carry that. But if it's a week, then usually I need to. I, 
I'm not that, I'm, I'm pretty good at packing compactly, but not that much. And typically I like to bring my instrument then if I'm going to be gone for more than two days. Mm-hmm. And so if I have my instrument and my computer, then those are my two carry-ons. Is, so. do, you, do you find travel to be an integral part of your role with Diderio? Um, especially in the first year that I worked for Diderio, uh, travel was very important. Um, there were a lot of people who I communicated with via email. There were big names in the clarinet and saxophone communities that it seemed very important to get to meet and have this face-to-face interaction and, and build an actual relationship with them as people versus just text on a page as an email. So I traveled a lot in the first year. I pretty much went to all of the big clarinet and saxophone shows, um, as many of the university clarinet days that I could make it to, um, smaller artist events. I tried to go to everything, and it burned me out a little bit. It was a, a little too much travel for me at my age. Um, not that I'm that old, but I still couldn't handle it. <laughs> um, and so it was great. I got to, a chance to meet all of these people and build a relationship. And I feel like there's something about meeting people face-to-face that that gives you a bond that you can't necessarily get via email or just with a quick phone chat with somebody. And um, especially if I am the liaison for, between the artists and the company, I feel like they need to be able to put a name with the face and vice versa. So it's very important that I, I got to travel and see them. In the coming year, um, I think I'm going to be traveling a little bit less just for my own sanity. And um, that's more or less it, just for my own sanity. Um, it was just, it got a little overwhelming being gone. You know, if you travel six weeks in a row, um, it's it's kind of taxing. It tires me out. Oh, yeah, you were all over the place this year. Yes, but I got to see lots of great places, which is nice. I meet tons of wonderful people, so it was absolutely worth it. Um, which I can say now, but if you had asked me in week six of the trip, I would have said the exact opposite. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Well, I think it's such an interesting job that you have and the role that you serve with the Dario there is very, it's important for the community and it sounds like it's fulfilling and enjoyable. And, uh, I think that, uh, I think it's a really, really cool, cool job. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I'm, I'm very lucky to end up where I have with this position. Uh, And if you had asked me even just four years ago, where I would have been, I would have never guessed this. Um, as you mentioned, I, I went all the way through school and got my degrees in music performance, primarily studying clarinet, but then studying the other woodwinds on the side as well. And I had all of these dreams along the way of wanting to do different things. You know, I originally thought I would be a band director and then changed my mind quite quickly on that one. Um, then decided I wanted to be an orchestral clarinetist. And I did that to an extent. Um, I played in some symphonies. And then I decided I wanted to do musical theater. And then I decided I want to be a university professor. I kind of went through all the different things. And I guess music industry was kind of the the next one on the checklist. Um, But it's not really where I thought I would end up. I really didn't think I would end up doing a role working for a music company. If you had asked me any amount of years ago, I would have never guessed this. But I'm really happy that I've ended up here um, and that I get to work with the great people that I get to work with here. Well, the cool thing about it, and, and Michael Lowenstern actually mentioned something kind of similar, like when he was in school, he wasn't quite sure exactly what was, what was where he was headed and things he was doing, but he, he knew he always wanted to perform. But then he started finding that the performance was, was just different than he thought it was. And when he left music to be an advertising exec, he, he was worried that he would no longer be regarded as, as a musician, but he found that he could actually be his most musical because all the time he spent on music was for him now. 
Yeah, um, absolutely. So do you find that you're, you're pursuing your artistic goals um, along with your work with D'Addario? Absolutely. Um, and that's something that New York is probably not one of the easiest places to, to make it into the scene as a woodwind doubler mm-hmm. or a clarinetist. Um, so I have been playing some shows and doing things here, um, not to the amount that I was when that was my, my source of income, when I was primarily freelancing. Um, I was doing shows nonstop, playing musicals and doing concerts and various things because that was how I was affording to live. And now it's a little different because Diderio is my primary thing. That's what I'm doing most of the time. Um, and so I haven't been able to fully devote my entire time toward playing on Broadway or anything like that. Um, but I have been able to develop a lot of great skills um, and still keep learning like I was talking about before. I'm one of those people that always wants to keep learning. And so I'm constantly getting new music, um, new etudes, and, and I'm still out playing and, and doing gigs and things. And I still feel artistically fulfilled. Um, but it's a great time for me to be able to build skills, especially on my secondary instruments um, mm-hmm. that I maybe didn't have time for when I was just performing nonstop. Um, it gives me a little bit of an opportunity to breathe and reassess my playing and figure out exactly what I want to do. Yeah. And for students listening, I think that's just such an important thing because a lot of, a lot of them feel so much pressure to literally perform. Um, and there's so much like the music community is so vast and look at the amazing networking you get to, to take part in and, and the travel and the interesting things as far as the, the manufacture and design and, and development of products are extremely important in the industry. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and the knowledge that I've learned here has really helped me as a musician, too. Um, Even just getting to be part of the process, learning more about how reeds are made, um, when they're manufactured, the different cuts and the different scrapes and how they affect it. Um, These are things that I can carry over into my own skills. So when I'm adjusting my own oboe reeds, I'm better at troubleshooting problems on them than I used to be before because I know more about the design and how it works and how different tweaking different spots on um, a vamp or a scrape can affect how it plays. So I feel like I've learned a lot of um, just a lot about more about how equipment works. And I feel like that has made me a better musician too. When before I was working here, I would just tend to play whatever worked. And if it didn't work, then I didn't know why. And I would just find something else. It's been better now to be able to hone in on exactly what works for me because I understand more of the physics and how things work. So let's touch on that actually for a second, because D'Addario actually manufactures products from the student level or intended for students and beginners Mm -hmm. all the way up to um, the professional line of reeds. And there's different cuts and vamps and styles. What would an artist or a beginner or anybody really consider as far as which reed type or or thickness or strength is is best for them? And I hate to bring it all down to money. But I really think that the financial situation is the biggest decider on which read is the best, especially for students. Um, I know teaching in Texas, I had a number of students that were in a quite a well-off area. And so for them, they could start off on a reserve or reserve classic read. You know, they could spend the money to have a professional read that tends to be extremely consistent, is very high quality, and that wasn't a huge deal or a huge financial burden on the family for them to have that. And I feel like that gave them a lot of advantages. They, they get a, you know, an easier response, um, a more tonal depth, some of the characteristics that you would find from a professional cut read that may not be present in all student cut reads, or sorry, student type reads. And 
for students who are in families where they can't necessarily afford to spend that much money on a box of reads, um, they may need to start at a slightly different place. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be for me, for example. Um, when I started out, I started out on the Rico Orange Box reads. I didn't start on a professional cut read. Um, there really wasn't a reason to, in my director's eyes, in my private teacher's eyes, and my parents' eyes, and my parents' wallet. Um, there was no reason for me to start out on a read that was that expensive when I tend to be a pretty klutzy person and broke probably 80% of them. Um, there was no reason for us to spend that much starting out. And I don't feel like it held me back in any way starting on a student read um, or what's, qual- what's called a student read within the market. What does define a read as a student read? Um, well, typically student reads are a thinner blank and a more flexible vamp. So they tend to be very easy to play. Um, they're very rewarding for younger students because you don't necessarily have to have the same developed airstream like you would need on a more resistant or a thick blank type read. Um, so they can be rewarding for a young student because it's less material. It's much easier to machine and the cane is much easier to source. So the price point on it is quite a bit lower too, which makes it good for beginning students. Um, and there are still professionals who use it too, especially on saxophone, um, some people like the flexibility and the ease of response on it, and they are able to pair it with a good mouthpiece and get the tonal qualities that they're looking for. And there's no reason for them to go spend twice as much on another read. Um, in the clarinet community, um, it seems like there's a, a strong preference toward a professional cut read as we advance. Um, so moving beyond what we would call a quote unquote student read, um, Moving up to something like a reserve or reserve classic that provides a little more tonal depth, um, maybe a little bit more color, a little more character than a, a student type read. So does it have to do that also with the, the cut of the, sorry, the type of the cane or the grade of the cane and how long it's aged or what else goes into it? I mean, if the reads at the, at the student level are half as much as the mm-hmm. more, more professional advanced ones, I guess I'm just wondering how it gets to that, that point. Oh, sure. Well, actually the cane... Now from our brand, I can't speak for anybody else. I don't know their process, but for us, um, we use the same grade of cane for all of our reads. So we don't, we don't split them. And I I think in the past it used to be different than that. I don't know for sure, but I feel like when I was in school a long time ago, that the better or the more expensive cuts were better cane. I feel like that may have been the case, or I could have just made that up as a student. I don't know, but um, I know for a fact now that we use the same cane for everything. So that extends so, from the Rico line all the way up to the Diderio? Like, yes. Uh, wow. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yep. Yeah, we're very particular now about how we select our cane. So if it's not good enough for a reserve read, it wouldn't be good enough for a, a Rico read either. Um, that would be something that would be better used in a different project. Um, and so really the main difference is, I guess, thinking about how cane grows. Growing the cane that's a thinner walled cane um, it's much more common. So we grow more of it. Um, and that thicker walled cane, like we would need for a reserve classic type read or any type of thick blank read, um, is less common and we just happen to grow less of it. And it's more difficult to machine as well. So it puts more wear on the machines. Um, so as a result, the price point ends up going up as all of these smaller things are put into there. It's the same thing with, um, the size of cane. So growing the diameter of cane to get a bass clarinet read or a contrabass clarinet read, we grow much fewer of those tubes than we do of clarinet size cane. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons why those reads cost so much more. Well, yeah, if you think about it too, I mean, I don't know why this is just dawning on me now, but of course a contrabass clarinet read is so expensive. It literally contains the material of 
five or six <laughs> normal clarinet reeds. Exactly. And, you know, and we have no way to control the diameter of what grows either is the thing. So if we happen to grow a very little bass clarinet sized cane, that's a problem. Um, or if we happen to grow a lot of it, then that's a good problem. Um, it just depends from year to year. And that's one of the reasons why it's great that we have, um, fields in two different locations because we are able to grow, not only do they have opposite winters so we can grow cane all year, but it increases our odds of getting the right size diameter cane. So we aren't having to purchase cane from outside sources or use cane that's not of the right quality. Um, if we were only sourcing our cane from one place, um, if we had a bad winter or something happened, we could end up having to use inferior cane to create reeds. And that's a problem we don't want to deal with. So as far as the size then, or the strength, um, one of the things that always kind of bothers me is when people refer to the number as the size of the reed. Cause like to me, the reed is still clearly fitting on the mouthpiece. It's still sort yes. of the same size, but you're telling me though, that the, the student versus the professional models, the cane becomes thicker and like literally is getting bigger. Is that correct? Well, it's thinking about the blank size. So the actual blank, if you looked at the heel of the reed, if you looked at it from the side, the thickness of a reed like Reserve Classic would be much thicker than a Rico reed, mm -hmm. um, just in general. As far as the actual, well, the dimensions are different between those two also. Um, but thinking in terms of strength um, and size, they're not really physically any different. So it's not like as though we cut a four strength reed differently than we cut a two strength reed. Um, so it just so happens to be how... Um, how flexible the material is once it's cut. So we have no way to control that either. That's the other variable along with um, not knowing what diameter is the density of the cane. We can't really control that either. So we could source cane that grows or that when we cut it ends up getting all strength two reeds. It could all be soft cane. Interesting. So how, like, I guess we'll just have to deal with people who constantly call it the size of the reed. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> even though it's one of my big pet peeves, I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of people feel that way. But so what determines the strength of the cane then? Because so once you, you cut it down and you because I thought that the, the strength came from sort of the thickness of the, the material as it extended downwards. But the cane itself, the density, I guess, of course, affects that, too. So mm -hmm. how is that decided or how does that develop? Well, basically, when the reed is cut, they're always cut exactly the same. So they just are produced as is. So it's produced to a specific design. So mm -hmm. um, thinking our digital machine, we would be able to program it. Let's say we're making Reserve Classic. We would pro have it doing Reserve Classic reads, and it would just make them all exactly the same. Um, and then one of the steps that the machine does is it um, pushes a little bit against the tip of the read just to see how much the read deflects. And then it gives it a unit of measurement. Um, I don't actually know what the unit of measurement is called. But it gives it a number that grades the strength, and then it's sorted appropriately. So they're all cut exactly the same. It's more of a nature's choice as to what type of strength we end up with, hmm. if that makes sense. Well, that's actually interesting because I think that it actually that does make sense. But I think that what's interesting about all this is it's an example of how technology is really helping um, helping the classification of the strength become more accurate. So yes. perhaps that's why, for example you were saying artists are finding the new series of reads to be very consistent. Perhaps one reason is because when they buy a box of three and a half, they're all as close to what that's designed or supposed to be as possible because of how this has affected the selection process. Absolutely. And, and formerly it was a human process. Mm -hmm. So 
the reads would get to a point and then they were clipped by hand and then a person had to strength grade them and put them in the appropriate bins. And that's not necessarily a bad way to do it, but it's slower for one. And for two, there's the element of human error that gets added into it. Um, and I can say for myself, I make lots of human errors on a daily basis. So if I were the person sorting reads, there would probably be mistakes all over, which is why I'm not doing that. Um, but a machine, something that does it digitally, um, is programmed to do it correctly. And so it can better determine the strength than having a person do it. And it more accurately does it too. And since we started using this technology, I've, I have noticed that more of the reads in the box for me are working. Um, like I mentioned, I started playing the reads way back when I was in graduate school. Mm. And at that point, they were not on the digital technology. And most of them still worked very well. Um, I would occasionally find one here and there that wasn't as good. But for the most part, they worked well. Um, but I've noticed since they've moved to the digital technology, it's been even more consistent. And it seems as though whatever they're doing in California is getting better and better. I, I'm not always in on everything that they're doing over there as far as adjusting and making updates to equipment. But I've been noticing lately, especially my last few boxes have been pretty remarkable. This one I broke in over the weekend, um, there are 10 reads in the box and all 10 of them are ones that I would feel comfortable using for, for practice or for performance, which is not something I would have said before. Yeah, you know, I should mention for listeners, um, in an upcoming episode, we're going to be focusing more on like the particulars of the product. Um, this is something that uh, there might be one or two other people talking about that. And that'll be more kind of for the, the techies in the in the audience. But um, for artists, how does this sort of new era of craftsmanship in other ways help them deal with these reads? Do they have to, can they adjust them less or are they meant to be adjusted if they're so perfect already coming out of the, the read machine or how does, what's the thoughts on that? Well, they absolutely can be adjusted. Um, I would never say that anything is a perfect process. I'm the last person to ever say that it's perfect, but I feel like we're on the road to creating the closest thing to perfection that we can with the natural substance um, being cane. Um, mm -hmm. And with the amount of control that we can have over that while still maintaining organic growing processes. That makes sense. For me yeah. now, hearing about how exact it is and stuff, I'm I'm worried mm -hmm. that I go in there with my little reed knife or something, and all of a sudden, I <laughs> there's no way I can ever re repeat that. <laughs> so, so um, what, what reed adjustment tools do you suggest? Um, well, actually, for clarinet, I haven't been adjusting my reeds at all lately, which sounds very cheesy, like I'm trying to advertise, but I'm really not. Um, I I haven't been having to do anything to them. Um, I've been finding that the way that they've been cut is very consistent. I found the cut and strength that worked best for me. And so once I honed in on that, then I was good to go. I don't really have to do anything. I wish I could say the same for my oboe reads, but I can't. <laughs> but see, I feel like for clarinet and saxophone, um, there are enough options in the line and enough strength choices that finding one that's the perfect fit where you don't need to do any adjustments or very minimal adjustments is, is very possible. So Tom, I think we've had a really interesting conversation about sort of your work, your work with Diderio and your history as a woodwind doubler and some of the amazing things that you've done. Um, is there anything else you'd like to quickly add before we move on to the lightning round? Mm, not that I can think of. Awesome. Well, let's do this then. So the lightning round is uh, a series of short questions, which are all designed to be answered in under a minute each. And um, I think that uh, these are always interesting because we get some really interesting insights into what everybody 
is doing and reading. And listeners, this is the chance too, where like you can get some cool insight as far as which books you should be checking out or adding to your reading list. So, so the first question, if I was to walk over to your music stand right now, what would I find? Well, as luck would have it, I'm in my practice room right now and my music stand is directly next today. So I can tell you exactly what's on it. Um, I know we lucked out. Um, so I have a bassoon reed case, um, the Fairling studies for bassoon, which are where the Rose studies for clarinet were adapted from, um, three oboe reeds, a pencil, some plastic and an old mouthpiece patch. So basically just a big mess of stuff. I really need to clean this room. Um, <laughs> so is the, uh, the, the plastic just some random piece of plastic? Um, no, it's from the clarinet reeds I was breaking in over the weekend. Oh, Rather than throw the trash away, I put the plastic on my stand. Fair enough, fair enough. So what is one book that you'd recommend to all clarinetists? And it doesn't have to be a music book. Um, well, I think the book that was the most helpful for me in realizing that there were things outside of performing and teaching um, was a book that was recommended to me by the professors at North Texas uh, called Beyond Talent, which is by Angela Miles Beeching. Um, it's a cool book that talks about the types of things that you need to have outside of just being a good musician or a good player. And we build those skills through private lessons and through practicing, but it's things um, like people skills or ways that you should act on a gig or how to prepare a resume or business card things, um, how to design a business card. Um, The types of things that we may not intuitively know about as musicians that are helpful when we are out in the real world and aren't students anymore. Oh man, that's right up my alley. I'm going to definitely be checking that one out. And for listeners, as always, I'll throw links up to these in the show notes. If you uh, are right now driving, scrambling for a pen, you don't have to do that. Just relax. (laughs) Clarineat.com and search uh, Diderio in the search bar and this one should come up. Uh, What is the best piece of advice you have ever received and who gave it to you? I guess the one that sticks out to me was actually from uh, Marina Sturm, who is my former clarinet teacher. Um, This is one that was not just advice for clarinet playing, but was good for life in general. Um, I tend in general to get on myself when things go wrong. This was Mm -hmm. true as a musician and as just an everyday person. Like I forget to do something and then I just beat myself up over it. And uh, Marina told me about an experience she had once um, when she was interacting with surfers and they were talking about how they remain so carefree about everything, how they can just live and, and exist. And the big thing is thinking about um, mistakes and things that you've done wrong as being in the past. And the, she did this motion where she kind of threw her hand like over her shoulder, like you're throwing the worries or the care away. And mm-hmm. I guess that's what they did. And she said for her, that's something that really resonated. And it, it did the same for me, actually. So whenever I do something wrong, I'm like, okay. And I, I oftentimes actually do the physical throwing of the the um, the bad thought over the shoulder. And it really does help. It, it helps me remain very calm when I mess up. That's so interesting, actually, to kind of turn this sort of mental energy into a physical discarding of that that energy. I like that. And it works. And I miss a lot of wrong, or, you know, I miss a lot of notes um, when practicing. And mm-hmm. that's something that it keeps me from getting stressed. Um, I can do that and I go, okay, it's in the past, go back and do it again and do it right. And um, that's kind of helped me really develop good practice habits um, and just good life habits. I don't get stressed after practicing anymore because I, I just try to stay very stress-free about it. Do you think that's something that would be beneficial to students? I mean, a, a lot of teachers now have sort of methods with students where they're they're literally counting the number of times they tried something with little pennies on the stand or whatever. But do you think like the physical action of throwing away that negative energy works 
for, for younger students too, or? It might. I don't know if it would have worked for me. I think, I think M&Ms would have worked best for me as throwing, a kid. Throw, Moving, throwing the oh, clarinet. No, <laughs> oh, that works well too. No, oh. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't do that. I remember actually when I was younger, we used to do the M&Ms moving across the stand. And then once you finished, you could eat them all. Oh, wow. um, my problem was I would eat and then I would go practice and get chocolate in my clarinet. But, um, <laughs> but no, I think, I don't know, maybe when I was younger, that throwing over the shoulder thing wouldn't have meant as much. I don't think I would have really understood it. Yeah. But I think because I studied with Marina, she was my teacher for my doctorate. So at that point, I, I feel like I was already intellectually matured enough that sounds very arrogant, mm-hmm. um, for it to make, <laughs> for it to make sense. And so mm-hmm. now I, I still do that motion all the time and it, it just really helps. So what is your all time favorite piece of music? And I know that's a tough one, but it is, I, I think this is, well, I almost just said this is the unanswered question, but I don't want you to think that that's my answer to the question. Um, it's very deep. <laughs> um, <laughs> It really keeps changing all the time. Um, and I always tell my friends, this is one of the reasons why I don't have and will never have a tattoo is because I never like anything long enough to do that. So um, pieces of music, I find so many different things that I like and I keep discovering new music all the time. Um, and every time I think I found a piece where I'm like, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard, then I hear something else and I like it better. Mm-hmm. And then I just keep experiencing new things. So. For example, like in high school, Pines of Rome was one of my favorite pieces and I loved it. And then I played Mahler one and I thought, wow, this is the best piece I've ever played. I love this. And then I played the Machinsky time pieces. Wow, this is the best piece I've ever played. And then right of spring. And I, I don't even know how many things I've played where I've said, this is the best music I've ever played or the best music I've ever listened to or experienced. Um, that's probably not the answer you wanted. You probably well, you know, wanted me to maybe a, a way to reflect. <laughs> no, I, I agree. It's a tough one. And I also do agree that it's hard to have like a definitive uh, thing. Um, and even me, like I, I kind of know where my exact top album is of all time, but I, I could never say what my favorite piece is. So I've often thought of revising this question. So maybe I should ask it this way. What's your favorite piece right now, this week or this, this day? Oh, See, that's the other thing. I don't even know if I know my favorite piece this week. <laughs> What's on rotation right now? What's on rotation? <laughs> um, what was I listening to yesterday? The bad thing is I've just been listening to myself practice. I feel like that's horrible advice for students. <laughs> but, <laughs> actually, it's actually probably very good advice. I mean, to, a lot of students actually don't listen to themselves. That's um, true. Practicing, yeah, even while they're past, practicing. <laughs> <laughs> I say this past weekend, I actually just realized all the practicing I've done is I, I haven't done any listening or studying. It's all been just playing and now working we, on reads for, for oboe. And that's pretty much it. Well, now we can change that. <laughs> anyway, yes. so we can move on, but, um, okay. if, I can re-answer that one in a minute if we need to. I just, I don't have a good answer. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <Sorry. okay>. <laughs> <laughs> if you could meet any musician or composer past or present, who would it be and why? I think if I could only meet one, it would have to be Alberto Hinastera. Um, the composer who wrote the famous Variaciones Concertantes that clarinet players love to hate mm-hmm. with that, that run, um, <laughs> the run, I don't even need to talk more about it. The run. Um, I actually, I wrote my dissertation on Hinesterra's, um, that piece, that particular piece and performance practices for clarinet. And as part of the study for that, to be able to talk a little more about the background of the piece and the theory in it, um, I purchased the scores for all of his other works and studied them all so that I could have a better understanding of his um, compositional output. 
Mm-hmm. And so for me, I've, I feel like I would have so much that I'd want to ask him about just his style and why he made certain decisions on things and just about his life. He's a very interesting person. Um, and I feel like there, I would just have so much to talk to him about. Yeah. I think that so much of like, uh, of music is, is inspiration to me anyways. And I always think about the people I really would have loved to go back and meet. And I think sometimes it's almost sad that we don't get to, but it would be, it would be interesting to, to go back. But in a way, the mystery kind of keeps it, keeps it there too. So have you thought of a piece you might? (laughs) (laughs) No, I was thinking about it. I want to try and drag a piece out of you here. I really want a piece of music. (laughs) That's okay. I'll see the Mozart clarinet concerto. Oh, there we go. I do like the piece, but it's, yeah, after you've played it on, well, I don't may- know how many auditions. It's yeah. Maybe this piece that you just mentioned, I'll, I'll put a little link up to that. So, Yeah, the Hinastera, that's probably one that's a, a long-lasting favorite, I'd say. Even though I keep cycling between favorite pieces, that's one that's probably stayed in the top three for a long time. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show today, Tom. Um, if people are interested in finding you online, where can they do that? Do you have a Twitter, Facebook, website, etc.? I do. Um, well, I do have a website, which is probably the best place to go first because you can access my social media there without having to spell my last name. So it'll save you a lot of time and, and anxiety. So, um, my website is tkwoodwinds.com. It has a lot about me, my past experiences, some videos and some sound clips. And I also have some cool teaching resources on there that might be nice for educators. Um, it has scale pages and register slurs and different things that are annotated That'll be helpful for students when they have fingering choices and things like that. Um, and the website's actually something I feel comfortable sending people to now. Um, my best friend, Steph, is a, a web designer, and she redid my website, so it no longer looks like GeoCities circa 1996. And it's um, <laughs> something I can now feel comfortable sending people to. Um, on there, there's also a link to my Instagram, which is T if you want to find it that way. And then I'm also on Facebook. Um, I do have a Twitter account, but I never use it. So if you follow it, you will see absolutely nothing. Awesome. I'll check that out. And I'll, as always, I'll share links to all your social media and everything in the, the show notes there so people can follow or check it out if, if they like. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today, Tom. Um, is there anything else you'd like to quickly share with the audience before we wrap up? Well, I guess it's something I'd really like to share with you. Um, I just wanted to say thank you for for creating Clarinet. I really think it's awesome that we have a a podcast that is for the clarinet community. Uh, I see it for other communities and, and people have been using them for years as a resource. And I think it's something that we've needed to help get information out there. And I'm glad that it exists. So I just wanted to say thank you for that, for creating it. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I, uh, I, I really look forward also actually to chatting with some of your colleagues next week about the, the amazing things that the is happening with Diderio and the, uh, new era of craftsmanship that we've been hearing about on the, the sponsored ads. And actually that's one more thing I'd like to say is that I'm so appreciative of the relationship that we've developed um, over the course of the last few months here with the Dario and this podcast would not have been possible thus far without, without that support. And it's very much appreciated. Oh, you're very welcome. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Tom. And I look forward to speaking with you, hopefully in New York when I get the chance to come down there someday. Yeah, definitely.
Thanks for listening to the Clarinet Podcast. If you'd like the chance to win items mentioned on the show, please be sure to head to www.clarinet.com and subscribe with your email address to our mailing list. You'll also receive free content updates, coupons, and more directly to your inbox. If you're enjoying the show, please consider subscribing and leaving a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you happen to listen. If you'd like to support the show directly, you can purchase your new and neat clarinet items at the Clarinet online store at clarinet.com store. Or you can become a backer on Patreon at clarinet.com Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Today's episode was brought to you by our sponsor, Didario Woodwinds. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, Diderio is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques. So you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from Diderio Woodwinds, visit diderio.com woodwinds.